everyone's body and everyone's experience is valid and unique. If somebody drinks an infusion and says, you know, I feel this way and I'm feeling this place in my body, how could that possibly be wrong? This week, I have a conversation with Vanessa Shakur. She's an herbalist and an educator teaching others in her field, and most recently, an author. You'll hear me explain in a moment, but I'd never met Vanessa before this conversation. A student of hers and a friend of mine, Maria, connected us, and I'm really glad she did because I really liked this one. Vanessa's so wise and grounded and has lived this really fascinating life. What she really does in her work is she helps people connect to nature and their environments. And her work is really rooted in the natural world and what she calls our own inner wild, which is really our intuitive connection to ourselves. We had a really wide ranging conversation talking about everything from the connection between nature and eating disorder recovery, consent and anger and how that relates to weeds like dandelion. We talk about the creative process, writing for emotional wellness, navigating highs like new relationships and career successes. She's in one of those highs right now. We talk about how to manage the nervous system during highs like that and also lows. We talk about her new book, Awakening Artemis. And we start off this conversation, you'll hear her answer to the question that I wasn't recording yet, but I was asking what she was drinking because she was drinking an herbal infusion. And if you've listened to this podcast for any bit of time, I've had a few herbalists on this podcast. Rochelle, when I was still in New York, my really close friends, Aaron and Noah, have been on the podcast multiple times. And I'm just really happy to talk about this subject, something that I'm really interested in and fascinated by. And it was really cool to meet Vanessa and have our first conversation recorded. So thank you so much for being here and listening. It means so much to me and I'll talk to you at the end. I have quite a few updates. You said you have one by you too, or you have one on the stove? It's a cup of nettles oat straw and burdock root Mm. actually with a little astragalus root in there as well this is such a good place to start so this is reminding me well we connected because our mutual friend my very good friend maria who i've known if you if anyone's been listening to this podcast for any length of time they know maria because maria worked with me for years and we kept in touch and she was like oh if you ever like expand the team i'd love to like work with you and let it out. And at the time I like really didn't have the capacity for that. There was someone who was helping me and that was really like all, all the team needed to be. And that, but I was like, Oh, I I would love that. So I bring it up. So so she worked with me for a very long time. And then her, she left about less than a year ago in, and it's on my mind because I was emailing her today with like tax forms, but she left about a year ago and her best friend from college who she went to music school with Ella 
took her place. <laughs> so it's really this oh, wow. like beautiful family affair. And the reason I, I brought her up in the first place was just like what we just did right there. Of Like, what are you drinking? What are you drinking? We would always like start our calls like that. And, and Maria helped me start something called Creative Underdogs. And I renamed it to In Process, but this, this group container for creativity. And we would go around and say what we were drinking. And you know, sometimes it was like coffee or wine or whatever. But often for me, it was an infusion of sorts. And I am not an herbalist, but I am fascinated by herbalism. And my very dear friend, my one of my best friends is an herbalist who's been on the show multiple times. She's in Australia and I make an infusion every day. And anyway, the whole reason I bring this up is because Maria, she did a really cool thing for this zine that we made. She helped me make a infusion mix for creativity and she was oh. taking your program and she's a graduate and she just spoke so highly of you and as you know connected us somewhat recently and i'd been so eager to record this with you and we were actually going to record on the spring equinox and we're just a few days away from it now but i have to i have to be honest with you i have to tell you i've been really sick and i completely lost my voice but my voice is back, which is great. But I have, I took a bunch of COVID tests. It's not that. I just have um, just regular sick, you know, just like a regular cold, but I haven't had one in so long. So I actually went to Wild Terra, my local herb store here in LA, and I got like an immunity, like I'm, I'm off my normal nettle situation, <laughs> highly nettle situation, and have some like immunity things brewing as we speak. You grew up in Western Massachusetts and you were pretty outdoorsy, it sounds like, but mm -hmm. take us all the way back. I know a lot of this started based off an accident that you got in when you were, I think, 16. Yeah, I had, a, I had a car accident. I fractured my back and my neck. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened. Years old, and um, and yeah, I couldn't move for a long time. I was like really totally laid up, and and it was I was stuck inside my body. And at that point, I did not have a good relationship with my body at all. Um, I had an eating disorder. I was really like struggling, just trying to like avoid a lot of memories that were coming to the surface for me. Um, and prior to that, I should mention too, when I was younger, I had really, really bad asthma. So I was out of school quite a bit. So I had a really kind of fraught relationship with my body. But the accident was one of those experiences that just forced me to look at myself. It shifted everything. I mean, it really, it was excruciating. And I went through two incredibly excruciating years and it took a long time to, to heal after that. It didn't only fracture my back. It literally broke everything open. It forced me, like I examined everything. It, you know, I started having a lot of nightmares. I was journaling constantly. I could do, I was so broken open that I could do nothing but focus on healing. So it was a blessing in disguise. You know, it, it set me on this path. You know, I feel like it was like a moment kind of, of initiation onto the path of healing. Yeah. It forced you kind of like we were saying before, which is sometimes what it, what it takes with that. We're coming into this conversation, like I said, at the change of the season. And I'm so fascinated by herbalism and by your work. But when I, was thinking about, you know, today, tell me a little bit more about how you're feeling and like, what, what does the change of the season mean to you? Especially you're in this new phase of your life. I was reading a lot of 
your newsletters. I think you moved recently and you obviously have a book that just came out. Yeah. I am in the process of moving right now and packing my apartment. I've been living in Western Mass for a little over a year now. I came here in October of 2020 to finish my book and I just decided to stay. I had been based in Brooklyn for many years before that. And, um, and while I was traveling to wild places, like spending two months in Scotland or a couple months in Costa Rica or upstate New York, I just, you know, Brooklyn was my base and I just, it just increasingly just became so stressful to come back to the city. So this has been an incredible sanctuary for the last year and a half. But yeah, so right now I'm, I'm going to be putting my things in storage and traveling with my partner for a lot of the summer. I'm actually working on a new book. And then have another place in Western Mass for a couple of months. And then he and I are going to see where we land. Wow, that's so exciting. I'm, I'm so happy to, to hear that, that I did something very similar. And at the beginning of 2020, I think there's so much richness in, in that part of an experience. And especially also too, you know, being in a new relationship and having a book come out, like it's just a real, sounds like a really sparkly time. It sounds, you know, there's this. It is. Yeah. And and seasonally, it feels very spring, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And I've done this periodically in, in like pivot points throughout my life. There was a pivot point, like when it meant it was about eight years ago, they did the same thing. You know, I just put all my things in storage in Brooklyn and went to Costa Rica to, to study plant medicine and do some teaching and yeah, devoted myself to to change. And so it, it feels, it's very liberating um, to kind of step back and then, you know, approach life again, less encumbered, especially when I feel like, you know, he, we're not quite sure where we, where we want to nest. It's nice to be able to explore for a little while. Yeah. I think that's a really wise move. Your newsletter, I think was, was about this recently where you talked about moving and packing and accumulating and belongings what is you know moving is messy moving is jarring when you're in the i was going to say in the weeds of it but that's something i'm going to try to stop saying we'll get to later but you know when you're when you're in it with that what is it brought up for you lessons wise related to belongings and accumulating oh it's a really interesting question well, I was recently asked to write something for um, this literary magazine called The Brumpus. And I was trying to decide what to write about. And at the time I was in Puerto Rico with my partner and, and I was thinking about, okay, well, like, what are the books that I've taken with me from apartment to apartment to apartment? Because every single time I move and, you know, in New York City, I moved quite a bit. I, um, I would always try and pare down to the essentials you know, give things away or donate things or give things to friends. But there's always those things I just continue to take with me. And so I've been thinking about that a lot. I wrote basically the books I, I wrote about for that piece. It was to, they wanted me to choose 12 or 10 to 12 books that have really spoken to me throughout my life. I chose the books that I've taken with me from place to place throughout the years. And through the process of paring things down, I'm kind of looking at things like that. What, it, what is really precious Every time I move, I try and pare down to the things that are simply essential just to really lighten up, you know, not be so bogged down by stuff. And it's interesting. I think the the older I get, the less nostalgic I am about stuff. You know, it used to be that I would go through things and come across old pieces of art or 
old books or, and just have all these memories attached to them. But now I feel less nostalgic about things, which is really feels liberating. Yeah, that sounds liberating. I mean, I, I and I also I relate deeply. I, I don't have that. I'm I'm a very attached, you know, to a fault, anxiously attached, some would say, to people and places and ideas and you know, windows open on my computer and tabs. But for some reason, things I'm like the opposite. I I give things away so much that I have to like buy it again, you know, like can be a little bit too minimalistic almost. It's funny, I, I made a typo when I was preparing my notes for this. But I think it was cool. <laughs> Can I tell you? Yeah, yeah, please. I, I wrote down belongings related to belonging, right? Like, and I think, you know, maybe subconsciously, like, do you, this might be a stretch, but I'm going to try it. And this might be a dead end, but do you think there's something about, you know, I think we all crave belonging, right? Like, we all crave connection, truly. Mm-hmm at the root of so much of our trauma and neuroses and and anxiety and depression is like this need for connection. And and I think it's comes back to wanting to connect to the earth and nature and our bodies. And with that, we also have belongings, like the word belongings means things means, you know, almost when I hear it, I think, in like a capitalistic sense and in a a way that means, you know, something completely opposite of what I just described. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? <laughs> I think it, it's not a stretch at all because the more I've practiced herbalism and again, I can get into, you know, my, my kind of way of approaching it is, is more about deepening relationships with the land where I, I am as much as I'm interested in, in working with plants medicinally, I'm just much more interested in learning about who and what is growing on the land and, and, and through the lens of the plants, developing deeper relationships with land, um, getting to know individual trees, individual plants and working with plants in that way. It's really slowly like ushered in this sense of belonging that I didn't have before this sense of real intimacy with nature, this sense of relationship with nature and the more I feel that, the less attached I feel to things. So there is such a relationship to that. And I'm much more mindful about, well, first of all, there's, there's a level of calm, I think you feel. I mean, so there's, you know, I was, I was, I've been meditating on the, the idea of home. And I just, through working with plants in different places around the world, I, I, there's a sense of belonging wherever I go. Because there's, there's a familiarity. Like I, I have friends, so to speak, familiar plants that I know I've learned how to work with so that they, I feel the sense that like the earth and I collaborate together for healing. So that it just brings forth a sense of comfort and calm wherever I go. I don't, it doesn't feel like I'm in a foreign place a lot of the time when I travel. So there's that. And then there's just not wanting to burden the earth with so much stuff when I'm gone because <laughs> ultimately we can't take things with with us you know so yeah I think there's a, a strong correlation there because there's definitely the more I feel a sense of belonging to land the less I need and the more I meditate on how the things I accumulate are going to impact the earth in the end 
that makes me think of that quote. I don't know whose quote it is, but that it's almost like a cliche, but it's like, wherever you go, there you are, you know, that yes. one. Yes, yes, yes. I, I say that quote in my head all the time. Yeah. Same. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> even though it's true, it doesn't make it less annoying. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I kept thinking that, you know, when I was like at my most depressed, like eat, pray, loving, you know, all over the mm-hmm. the world, I'd be like, God damn it. I'm in this beautiful place. And I, you know, and, and opposite too, like I can, you can be anywhere and feel, you know, euphoric and vice versa. And it makes me think of that because wherever you go, there's the earth and wherever yeah. you go, yeah. you're part of the earth because we're bodies. So I, I really like the way you articulated that. There was something that you said in one of these episodes that I listened to you on today that I meant to write down and I didn't, but it kind of relates to this, which is about, well, I'll ask you this. How have you felt like you've connected more to your body or have you felt like you've connected more to your body or felt more embodied connecting more to the environment and plants and herbalism? Oh, in a huge, huge way. I mean, for one thing, I always, you know, I think of my body as an ecosystem now. So just like the earth, um, I really, you know, I know I not just part of nature, but I am nature. I'm an animal, you know, like all we all are. And so for one, this is like another cliche in a sense too, but it, but I, there's, there's like knowing things and then there's knowing things like in like an embodied knowing. Right. And, And so there's a sense of, a deep knowing that the health and well-being of the land is is completely inextricably connected to my own health and well-being. So there's that. There, in order to be a good herbalist and also in order to heal my body, because I had a lot of health issues, I had to become much more attuned to my body and, and really begin to listen to like the subtle nudges when my body was slightly out of balance. And that's when the plants work the best. So through working the plant with the plants, it really helped me to listen more. And that listening has really deepened my relationship with my body. So yeah, in so, so, so many ways. And also a sense of presence that I didn't have before. You know, I always felt like I had a deep relationship with land because I grew up in the woods of Western Massachusetts and loved being outdoors and felt a very strong emotional connection to land. But there's something different, at least for me, about developing relationships with individual plants in the way that I have through herbalism, that when one plant helps you heal, there's a, there's a level of connection to land um, and to that particular plant that, that shifts. And the other thing I'll say too, is that the way that I practice herbalism, I'm very interested in wild plants. and I'm a big advocate of, of so-called weeds and so the practice of herbalism is really a practice of mindful awareness. Like I, I see my environment differently now. I interact with my environment differently. It's brought me to a totally different level of sensory awareness. So I, it's almost like this, everything is in technicolor suddenly. It's like this more of a vividness. And it's interesting because I am so curious about the land wherever I go. I'm looking at every single little sprout of green. So I've, I have so much more curiosity, like more of a childlike sense of wonder. And to me, that's entirely a bodily experience. You know, that sensory awareness, healing through plants and knowing that my body is, is nature, is part of nature. Wow. That sounds really cool. I, 
I have so many follow-up questions to that. I mean, first being, I relate to the part where you said, you know, wherever you go, you're, you're very aware of the land and looking around. I, I historically have not been that way. I've always loved cities. I've always wanted to live in specifically New York and didn't really care so much for Nate, not, not didn't care so much for nature, but didn't consider it, you know, if anything took it for granted, a real indoor kid, you know, I grew up in Michigan. I, I grew up in where there was nature. It's a beautiful place and state, but I didn't, you know, really consider it. And then moving here to California, it's kind of unavoidable to notice nature because it's such a intense contrast from both where I grew up and where I lived previously, obviously weather-wise, but my whole physical body is different. I mean, part of this was like, I, I turned 30 in the midst of the pandemic when I was here. So I think part of it is getting older, but I also think, you know, a lot of it is I'm in the sun so much more than I ever have been in my life before. Usually it was just a couple months of the year. Now it's every day and mm -hmm. it's dry. Like my hair feels completely different. I get nosebleeds and I never did. Everything is dry. And I actually just, when I was in wild terror a little bit ago, this infusion that I'm drinking because I have so much nettle in it, they were like, actually, you need to add something to that because nettle is actually really dry. Like things I just never would have considered, which is cool because it's like forcing you to look at the environment, just like on a macro level, you know, my move here, I think more so than I ever considered the land before when I lived in New York is just night and day. And, you know, I will have moments walking around just my neighborhood and I don't live near the beach, but I live walking distance to so many parks and, and nature. And just I'll, I'll walk around houses that have baskets outside with lemons and avocados. And right now it's luckwat season. So there's so many trees that I'm grabbing luckwats at, at. And there's a house on my route that I do every day that during guava season gives out guavas. And then it's grapefruit. And I, I will say out loud, like, I'll like look around sort of laughing and be like, I love it here. <laughs> like, it's so wild to me That's to see so the, the flowers and the palm trees. And like, especially the, the year of when it was the first year of COVID, I guess it had rained a ton. So everything was super lush and it was my first time here. So I had that like act two of Wizard of Oz that you were talking about where it went from, it sounds like this was my moment of, you know, coming to California and feeling it feeling so correct here for my body and for my nervous system and feeling similarly how you felt about leaving Brooklyn. And part of that is just things are easier here. Like it's a little bit easier than living in, in New York, but I, re I really, really understand that. But I'm wondering if you could elaborate on what you mean by when you say you feel connected to the land and you, you connect to the land wherever you are every day. Like, could you give some specifics? I mean, one thing I want to say too, just, just to sort of riff oh, please. What you said about, you know, living in the city, my, my herbalism practice began in New York City. And that's where, you know, again, I, I loved nature and I felt I had a, a relationship with nature, but 
I was oblivious to so much, meaning um, there's a plant, there's a term that's often used called plant blindness, where it's just like you look out upon the land and you just see this wash of green where, you know, it just looks like, you know, green carpet for many people. Um, But there's so many individual species there. And when I was living in the city, on, on some level, you know, I lived near Prospect Park and I was in the park all the time. I also looked at nature as scenery in a way, like many people do, you know, and then then looked about at the plants that grew through the cracks in the sidewalk as weeds. But what really shifted my perspective is when I began to learn that the so-called weeds like mugwort or dandelion or goldenrod or mullein do grow through the in abandoned lots or, you know, through, you know, these little cracks in the sidewalk are actually incredible, valuable medicines that have been used for centuries in herbalism that have an ecological role to play too. They have such rich history associated with them, folklore, that really shifted my relationship with land. So what I was kind of referring to earlier was, say, take mugwort, for example. That's the first plant I focus on in my book. And and just to mention too, the way I, I, I write the book is I weave together memoir and um, my own journey of healing through the lens of, a, of one particular plant per chapter. So mugwort is the first one. And that's the first plant I really worked with intimately. You know, I would sit with mugwort in Prospect Park, observe the plant in the wild, where the plant grew, which is often like along the edges of these of wild domesticated spaces, meaning like almost creating this threshold between like the forest of the park and the meadows where everyone sat. And so I kind of journaled what came up for me around that. And um, the plant's botanical name is Artemisia vulgaris, which is named for the goddess Artemis, who is the protector of the wild. And I kind of felt that the plants were doing that, you know, creating this kind of threshold between these domestic and wild spaces. And then I began to learn about the medicine of the plant through working with the plant. So really making tinctures and burning mugwort and just seeing the effect and impact on my body, working with the plant as medicine. So through all of that, and I worked with that plant for months um, and has some really profound experiences. And so of course, when I see that plant now, whether it's here in Western Massachusetts or in Scotland or in Brooklyn, I feel a, a sense of belonging. Like I feel I have a relationship with that plant and, you know, multiply that by many other plants and in like over a decade or more of doing this, I have a lot of these relationships that I built up, you know, through studying the plants, looking at their role in the ecosystem, working with them as medicine, teaching about them. So it just brings the land alive in a totally different way. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it totally makes sense. And I, I really appreciate that. I feel like it's a good serendipity that you started your herbalism career in New York because I really do too. Yeah. It shows that that you can. And and I, you know, as much as I said, you know, I wasn't like connected to nature while I was in New York, you know, I was going to flower power once a week and I was making my infusion in the East Village and, you know, drinking it every day. And like I still, you know, I it, and same with the parks. It's 
and who knows, maybe I'll go back to New York sometime. I, and maybe you will too. I, I love it so much. It's, I mean, it's the greatest mm-hmm. city in the world. And I, like, I, I didn't mean to say that it's not by any means, but yeah, I just, I, I actually think that's, that's a really nice coincidence. Having an eating disorder and then being in this accident how did that impact the eating disorder and how did you move through that after? Well, for one thing I was exposed, you know, I was, Mm -hmm. I had, had become really good at avoiding food and, and keeping myself really busy anytime food was around. And so I was like this busy body and my, it was so bad that my days were all structured around around avoiding food, you know? um, Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so when I had this accent, I was stuck inside my body and actually write about this in the book. And, you know, it just sounds so ridiculous now, but I was in such a bad place with the eating disorder that I was worried about getting fat. I wasn't thinking yeah. about, you know, I, cause I was like, I can't move. I can't avoid food. I'm going to be frozen in my body. Like, I'm, you know, I have to be dependent on everybody. So yeah, I was exposed that it was just the total exposure but really what it was, was I had to feel my body again. Um, I had a history of, of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And so that's really what it was about, you know, and I felt like avoiding food helped me avoid my body. And so with the accent, I couldn't do either. And it was so intensely uncomfortable. I mean, unbelievably uncomfortable. And I went through a period I mean, for a while I couldn't move. I could barely move at all. But then I went through a period where I was like, literally like shuffling to the bathroom. I had I was wearing this huge brace and I couldn't, I couldn't only like really shuffle, but I started to purge. I went through a phase of that. Yeah. But then I eventually, it, I just like, it was too obvious to everyone. And I was just, and I was also sick of it too, that I just gave up. It was almost like gave up. I was like, okay, I'm ready to heal. I have a problem. And not only that, I was, my body was trying to heal. I was I was confronted with the memories of sexual assault. And so it's like, okay, I, I just had to, I dropped out of high school and it was, I went to therapy and um, yeah, I literally was like full-time healing. Oh my gosh. And you're so young. You're 16. Yeah. Were yeah. your parents yeah. and family supportive during that time? Or were they incredibly supportive, incredibly supportive. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and again, like, I feel so fortunate that I dealt with all of that at such a young age, you know, and, and it's, it changed, it totally changed the way I've dealt with everything since, you know? And How I, so? I, yeah. Well, just not um, dealing with things as they come, not being afraid. Like, I, I know that discomfort is part of healing. I'm one to confront issues as they come up now, rather than avoiding them. And obviously through all of that, my, my relationship to food has healed me that healed many, many years ago, um, really through sports, actually, um, getting, becoming an athlete, totally, totally changed my relationship with my body and, and with food that was incredibly healing for me. So, um, yeah, so there's, so there's that, but also I, I'm, yeah, I'm one to confront things as they come up now. Yeah. Not letting it fester, you mean, and, and pushing it down. Faster, but also, I guess I, in retrospect, I see that this, this reading story is more of a coping mechanism. You know, it was, it was a, a way mm-hmm. like denying hunger is so incredibly distracting. 
you know, and so it was the, it was a very useful tool for me at the time to avoid other things. Yeah. Wow. This is really interesting and brings me to, you know, something else I want to talk to you about in your book, which is anger and rage, because mm. what I've been and these, these podcasts are such a picture of whatever I happen to be contemplating at the time of us recording where I lead the conversation to go. But that's something that, you know, you, you dedicate a whole, I think, chapter in your book to oh, anger. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because it's been coming up in almost every one of these conversations that I've been recording lately. And I've been realizing that why, <laughs> and I want to tell you about that, but going back to the eating disorder and and that it sounds like that just had to be an incredibly intense time to be 16 years old is intense period (laughs) (laughs) on top of that, you know, having the trauma come up and being forced to process that because your symptom or your coping mechanism, your distraction, which is such a common one of keeping yourself busy to not have to feel your uncomfortable feelings, which we all do, right? My mm-hmm. newsletter this week actually was a, about this, right? We had two, the last two guests on one, we talked a lot about beauty and vanity and bodies. And the next one, we talked a lot about capitalism and consumerism and what we wear and our relationships to what we wear. And both of those things I've turned to as distractions from feeling at certain points in my life. And then that reminded me of a large time in my life that I've turned to controlling my, my relationship to food and eating and my body. And that has been my chief primary coping mechanism. And it's been the thing that I've gotten the most outside validation for. It's something I'm, I, I'm very good at, but I've gone through through periods where when I was at my peak of that in college, it wasn't a car accident that I got me found out. But I think that's the thing about an eating disorder, right? It's you're lying all the time, right? You're yeah. you're lying to everyone at all times about what you're doing and you're pretending everything's okay. And yeah. That takes so much energy. Talk about a distraction. Yes. That it doesn't leave much for creativity or Mm -hmm. kindness or connection, right? It's very isolating. Oh, completely. Yeah. And it's kind of good in a a way to your brain because it takes you away from intimacy, right? Like it it keeps people at a distance. You don't have to like face a lot of the things that we don't want to face, a lot of the trauma, a lot of the rage, a lot of the anger. And so it, it, it works for what it is subconsciously working for, for a period of time until you are found out in some, in some way. And I was a bit older. I was in college when, when mine really, you know, I, I was found out, but it was not, not from an accident, but more just, you know, it was just very clear that I was, you know, my professor called me into his office and, and I, I think I fainted at, at something and it was just, you know, it was like one thing after the next and it was like, okay, you need treatment. Um, but 
my I would have these nightmares, Vanessa, and it would be like people forcing me to like eat essentially or, you know, taking this thing away from me because, you know, in a very like David Foster Wallace, like this is water sort of a way, like I made it my thing that I worshiped, right? Like you, and it sounds like at that time, you know, whatever you're focusing on, you're worshiping and thinking of someone removing that is so scary. And what's interesting is this has been something that's come up for me again and again and again in my life and different levels and spectrums. But what you were saying about being distraught, like your way of doing the eating disorder was being really busy and avoiding food. I think that's very common. And I lived that way in New York. New York is a prime location for being in that state. Right. It's like, sure. I'll go to your husband's friends, work colleagues, graduation party in Harlem. I'm in Brooklyn. No problem. I'll be there and I'll make, you know, it's like you just do all these things to to fill your time and it's very easy to do and you don't have to sit with yourself. And so I had an intense breakup and then like fully went back into the eating disorder by doing that kind of shit. And then so mm-hmm. much so I kept doing that traveling all like what I would do in the boroughs of New York, I would do all over the, the world And I was very privileged to be able to do this. You know, I think our eating disorders and our bodies aren't in our control. That's like the big thing that I believe because, you know, I think about my mom, right? Like my mom had to like raise me, work, do all this shit. Like she didn't have time for an eating disorder, right? She had to like handle things, right? And I was in this very privileged place where I could, you know, I'm very high functioning. You know, I still show up for the podcast. I'll still, you know... But what I know, I'm not operating on the level of the capacity that I do have because so much of it is going to controlling my food and weight and whatever. So Mm -hmm. then I'm traveling, I'm distracting, I'm distracting. And my version of, you know, being forced to slow down was I land here in L.A., fully planning to go back to like, all right, I'm going to run around L.A. just like I did in New York, just with a car. And then boom, lockdown. Boom, you can't go anywhere. Boom, you have to get food and shouldn't, you know, keep it in the house. Like I didn't even keep my refrigerator stocked. I like would go to the grocery store, you know, one time a day and it was so confronting. And so I really related to to what you said there of like I think sometimes these things come in out of our control to force us to pivot. It's like are you going to do this now or are you going to are you going to do this again? Like where where are you at this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, it's this illusion of control of self-control. Yeah. You know? And, you know, one thing that came up for me, that's, you know, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but I just feel like the more I have just like kind of fallen in love with the land, the more I fall in love with my body, you know, I just, um, yeah, I just, I can't even imagine doing that to myself now, you know, this, like I have it, just my level of self-acceptance, it continues to, to grow. That's so cool and so inspiring. But anyway, you were talking about anger and rage. I mean, you know, I had to work through tons of anger and rage. So, you know, one of the things I mentioned that was massive in my healing process was competitive sports. And it might seem really odd, but boxing was like my number one healing practice for many years. When I was rehabilitating myself after the accident, when I could finally you know, take the brace off and and start to move again and, and go to the gym. That was huge for me. And then there was a period of time, of course, where it got excessive. I sort of replaced the eating disorder with like obsessive working out. <laughs> yeah. 
But sports were really good for me because it was like I was developing a skill and I started to really appreciate my body more for what I was capable of than what I looked like. I was more interested in performance. And so food became fuel for performance. And then I wanted to learn how to eat for optimum performance. And of course, even then I had a really strong relationship with land. And so I was really interested in the impact of my food choices on, on the environment. And so it began to shift in that way. Um, but when I moved to New York City, I'm, you know, it's a long story that I'll condense. I met a professional fighter and it was just like, I just knew I needed to explore it. And just the training helped me release so much anger I'd had pent up in my body. And I was addicted already. I had a road crew in college to that level of discipline of, of, you know, just training. And so one thing led to another and I started training for competitive amateur fighting and then professional fighting. And it was um, totally, totally shifted my relationship with my body entirely. And uh, it was an incredible healing practice for me, um, not only to release anger, but just to appreciate my body for what I was capable of, you know. Mm. And, and also one of the things I read about in that chapter, too, is, is just to feel um, less like prey walking around the street. You know, I think I just feel it's so important for women to know how to fight. <laughs> that changed everything for me, too. So. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. I'm really happy that that happened for you. What would you say to someone, you know, I gave my long <laughs> interlude about, you know, my many bouts of distraction, right? And mm-hmm. being forced to to pivot from factors outside of my control and similarly what you shared and boxing coming into your life and healing your body. But what would you say to someone right now who is doing that, right? Like is distracting by controlling in some way. It might not be food in their body, but, you know, and I've done it with a slew of addictions from, you know, we can distract with people, we can distract with work or whatever it is. And what would you say to help someone come back? You know, I would say to just pause and and force yourself to have some time just to be. And one of the things that was so critical for me in my process of healing has been writing, journaling. I began a practice when I was back when I was 16 of writing as the body, you know, like literally letting the body speak. You know, if I felt discomfort or pain or fear or or memory was that I had really wanted to avoid was just really popping up again. I would write about it and get it out, get it out of my body, out of my system through writing. Cause you know, that's something that's only for you. And I wrote stream of consciousness. This was all kind of very intuitive, you know, but in retrospect, I was like, wow, you know, that was really critical for me. And, and, and honestly, it led me to my book, you know, it's just like my writing practice was something that like I had to do. It was like, it wasn't a choice. It was like, I have to get this out of my system and I'm just going to write. And there's some, for, for me, I felt this massive sense of relief, getting this pain and restlessness out, out of my body through writing. Art, visual art was another really important tool for me too. It's just translating that energy that's inside the body, outside of the body. And for me also, it was not only that act of moving it out, it was, it was also putting it somewhere where I could see it, where I could kind of um, parse it out, like look at it objectively. 
Um, so I would say that, I mean, that's a good starting place that is so accessible for people. You know, the other, another really important tool for me has been meditation and movement. You know, I would say that the, the main things have been apart from herbalism, but that's, that's, you know, I don't, I don't think that's quite as valuable tool right away, but I will, I do want to talk about connecting to land, but the, the three valuable tools for me have been creative exploration, which for me would include writing and art, meditation, and movement practice. Like those three have been so vital for me. And then of course, relationship with nature, you know, and that doesn't have to come in the form of herbalism, but just getting outside and just being with nature and in any way, you know, whatever is accessible for people. I think that is so grounding and so healing. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. That was what I was thinking about earlier when I was like, I heard you say somewhere on another podcast, something that just hit me really hard, which was that uh, you said it in in a way that really made me understand something that I have felt, which is you know the more you connect with nature, the the more you've connected to your body, and you're you're not able to to hurt your body anymore because your body is is nature. That like mm-hmm. is kind of just something that is still sinking into me today because I heard it for the first time. That piece about writing too, like writing to a part of your body. I love that so much. And I want to try to do that, especially related to this anger piece that I'm going to tell you about in a second. But the show's called Let It Out. I wrote this book called Let It Out that came out in 2016. It's about journaling. It's like about this, basically, Mm -hmm. that I found during that time I was just telling you about in college, Nobody really told me to do it. Nobody, you know, no one in treatment. I just suddenly was journaling. Like I did, mm-hmm. I didn't know it was that then, but it was the first time I was honest with myself, with anyone, right? Yeah, like it was the first place I was able to tell the truth. And I think yeah. that's why I did it. And I think that's why I kept doing it. And that's why it felt so good was because I was so good at lying to everyone else that I started to lie to myself, you know, like I started to like tell, and and that's the thing about, I think they say that about like serial killers and, and sociopaths that like the lies that they're telling when you do it a lot, like you end up believing that like, it, it's really wild. And so I was able to be honest with myself on, on the page and figure out what I was feeling. And like you said, parse through it and sort through it and decide, you know, what's true, what's, you know, just a mask I'm wearing for society or to find belonging that I don't even actually think or, you know, whatever it was. So that has been tremendously helpful and is still something that I do. And I'm so happy that it is something that is free and accessible and, you know, like everything you shared, meditation and, and movement and nature and obviously to different extents and time is then accessibility to nature is, you know, slightly an issue, but yeah, that's what I love about, about journaling. Do you still have a a journaling and writing practice? You, you mentioned it was informative of your book, but what is your, your journaling practice? Like, are you doing morning pages? Are you, you know, what's kind of your situation with that currently? Well, one thing I want to mention too, after listening to what you had to say, you know, one thing I think happens with all of these things, meditation, definitely. And with writing is that, it helped me get rid of all the noise 
because I really believe like at the core, we, we want to love our bodies and we, we, we do, you know, I just feel like we get so conditioned socially. We, you know, all this, all this stuff is globbed onto us that isn't ours. And I feel like the more I meditate, the more I write, the more I heal, it's almost like peeling back all these layers to get to what was always there and in the first place, you know? So I feel like writing does that for me. It gets rid of all the noise and puts me more in touch with that, that part of me that has always been in love with my body. So to get back to, to my writing practice, I, I write every day. You know, I often just, I love what you said about telling the truth. You know, that is so vital. And I do think that I think that's also what led me to journaling. It's just like, I, I had to get these things out of my system in a place where I wasn't ashamed to write them or, or draw them. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because it's just for you. And, and so it is a place where you can be honest and tell the truth. And I do, I still approach writing in that way. And I also, like I said, I'm working in another book, but I draw heavily on my journals in my, in my writing. Like I, I read memoir. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the book, but I read, read memoir throughout the book. And a lot of it, I relied on my journals for that to remember how I was feeling. And I, I tried, I always ask my, myself a question in writing the book, like what is in service of the story I'm trying to tell? I certainly don't want to trigger anybody with what I'm writing. I, you know, I wanted to share something, whatever is in service of the story, whatever is relevant. But I did pull from my journals quite a bit because those are the times that it was the most raw and I often find that that's my best writing. So I have a daily practice. I, keep, I actually keep a journal on my computer now just because I, I do draw so heavily from it when I, when I write for publication. And then I also have a journal that I carry around with me that I just, I'm always writing. <laughs> so yes, I mean, it's almost like a subconscious practice at this point. I'm like always doodling, always jotting things down. I'm noticing, you know, things that people say that really strike me and I write them down yeah, I've always been really, really in awe of words and and finding the right words to just describe what the experience of life, what my body's feeling. Sometimes it, it's really hard to be able to put experience into words. And I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the same, I, I also do the exact same thing. You know, I have always one going on my computer and I like change it seasonally just so the document's not so big. And I kind of mine that one for gyms more than I mine. I do like a morning page practice, like on a legal pad actually, because I find I won't be precious with it and that's good for me. But I also carry a lighter weight dirt, like physically um, lighter in my bag at all times. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad to relate to you on that and that it informs you creatively as much as as it sounds like it does I have to do it though (laughs) yes oh my god I really essential for my mental health it's like it's like filtering my thoughts out so yeah I mean it's like it's just I have to write yeah (laughs) so I feel the same way I I know you know there's I keep mentioning Diddy in today but she has that quote right where it's like I don't know what I'm thinking unless I'm writing or until I'm writing and I feel when I heard that I was like that's what it is like me too you know not that my my prose is is beautiful or shareable or you know even understandable to anyone but me in that moment but it is my self care that's one thing i know for sure and i'm someone who's such a verbal processor that i constantly 
mean to slow it, it slows you down right you know like you can't write even i can type pretty fast but none of us can type or especially handwriting because none of us can do that that fast it slows our brains down enough to figure out what we're thinking and sometimes i have to turn to the computer if i feel really pregnant with something i need to process and let out I have mm-hmm. to get to the computer quicker than handwriting because I just like, and it almost, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this because it sounds like, honestly, as we're talking, I'm just like, I love you. Like, and it sounds <laughs> like we just have a lot in common and I'm um, like, we do. Yeah. I'm just like, so I feel like you'll love this. So I also get into these very long voice text exchanges with mm-hmm. several of my friends and I do it on WhatsApp or Signal because it's so much better than the Apple format. Maria is one of them. And it's it's mostly my friends who don't live here. And with different time zones, even you know, the, the time zone of the East Coast to, to the West Coast feels significant at times. And my herbalist friend Erin and her husband Noah and I are in one and you know we send 40 minutes back and forth at least once a week, sometimes more. And they're in Australia. And so every once in a while I'll say like, oh, this, this is getting really morning pagey because it's just me like a little bit caffeinated, a little bit high in endorphins and, you know, vitamin D and just like, if I haven't done my morning pages yet, like just kind of spewing, but it's truth. Mm-hmm. And what, what I think I'm meaning by that is like, this is me truth. Like this is, I'm not, you know, telling a story about to make it sound a certain way, or I feel so safe with you that I'm not like, oh, what do they, what do they think of that? Because they're not there on the other end and I'm not live. Yeah. It, it just becomes really open. And so one of these people who are really special to me, who I'm in these voice text exchanges with is my friend Meredith. And she's an incredible artist, collage artist and bassist. And she's, she's hilarious too. And, you know, hi, she, she might hear this. And she said this thing, I just listened to it before this conversation where she was saying how spending time alone is self-care, right? And and just oh, yeah. she was like redefining things that are self-care for us. Like for me, it's like I need so much time alone. I have to be writing in my journal. I mean, that's kind of like obvious, but it's not just like the bath or the meditation even or like exercise or like honestly, some of those things are pretty negotiable and like they're cool if I do it, but like I'm not gonna it's not that much of an impact and they change right they they change cyclically and and seasonally and and what where you know are we falling in love are we partnered are you know all the are where are we in the world or our cycles but knowing what self care is to you right now is step 1 and mm-hmm. then prioritizing it is step 2 and it both of those are really hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like both of those things take effort. And she said it to me in the context of, you know, why I got sick. Like I mentioned, I, I've been under the weather and I, I know why it's because I've been like running around and around people and I've been craving and wanting alone time. And my body was just like, here you go, <laughs> you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I, it, it does feel very essential. And I, I just, I really liked how you said that. This week, Athletic Greens is helping to bring us this podcast. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted to have a bit more energy and turns out it's really great. I didn't like having to take so many different 
vitamins and supplements, but with Athletic Greens, you really just need the one. And, you know, we all like something that's swift and easy and tastes good. What is Athletic Greens? With one scoop, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, gangs all there. They'll really help to start your day right. And it's a special blend of ingredients to support gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, focus, aging, all the things we're wanting to support. This is supporting. How does it work? Why is it so great? Let me tell you, you could bring it with you while you travel. I think that's important. You know, it's something that when you know your immune system might be a little bit down, you can turn to this and know you're getting everything you need. What's cool about Athletic Greens and their founder is that he created something that he really needed. He was having a lot of gut health issues and it ended up really complicated and he had this big supplement routine and it cost him over a hundred dollars a day which is wild so he created athletic greens to make this optimal nutrition routine one-stop shop and now you can do the same they also have really great values on sustainability they're climate neutral certified and in 2020 athletic greens purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests i think that's really cool and athletic greens has over 7000 five star reviews they're recommended by professional athletes and by me and my friends that i've shared it with Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the cold and flu season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash let it out. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash let it out to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, we all have that item of clothing that we want to wear again and again and again because it feels really great. Maybe it's a pair of shoes that are perfectly worn in. With Third Love, you don't have to break it in. It's perfect the moment you put it on. For Third Love, they make this 24-7 classic t-shirt bra. It's the number one product that they make and that's for a reason because it's been worn and loved by millions of people and you know what? I think I'm one of them. It's so comfortable. Might be the most comfortable thing I've ever had on my body. Something I really love about Third Love is that it's available in sizes A through L, including Third Love's exclusive half cups. That's incredibly important. I have never been able to find 
things that fit me my entire life. And you know what? Third Love really makes it easy. They make sleep and loungewear as well. I love lounging and I love, you know, wearing Third Love while I do it. And maybe you will too. Here's a cool thing about the fitting situation I was talking about, right? They have this fitting room quiz and it's very simple, but it's very detailed and it can help you find the perfect both size and style for you, which I think is really cool. Comfort and quality is number one. What else do you want? You want comfort? You want quality? They are made by women for women for every, you know, ounce of your day. Active wear, sleeping. They just do it so well and they're very, very comfortable. And like I said, there's the fitting room quiz and the perfect fit promise and they're giving back. Third Love is the largest donor of undergarments in the U.S., partnering with organizations across the United States. Third Love has donated over $40 million worth of bras to help people in need. Feeling is believing. Give your boobs the 24-7 comfort and support they deserve. Upgrade your bra today and get 20% off your first order today at thirdlove.com slash let it out. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash let it out. Today's episode is brought to us by Credit Karma. Are you paying down old credit card debt? A personal loan could be your solution. Loans usually come with a fixed monthly payment situation, making them a simple way to help you pay off credit cards. Plus, loans usually have lower interest rates than credit cards do, and Credit Karma can help you find the best option for you. Planning ahead for a big expense, maybe a car repair or a medical bill, unfortunately, or a high interest credit card, Credit Karma can help you look for the lowest interest personal loan that could save you money while you pay for your purchases. Credit Karma uses your credit card data to find loan offers that are personalized to you so you can have a better idea of what loan amount you can get approved for. Credit Karma will even show you your chances for approval so you can choose between loan offers that are more likely to get approved and apply with more confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is 100% free, won't affect your credit scores, and it could save you money. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. May we go back to anger briefly? <laughs> of course. So you you talk about trauma and connecting to your body. I would love for you to talk about that a little bit and how you do that on a daily basis and how you help other people to do that in your writing and in your your practice and and teaching. Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I would say through my writing, you know, I, I've been helped by writers who are honest, you know, like you were talking about earlier, you know, I, I love writing that's raw and honest. And that's the writing that helps me most. I see myself in it. Sometimes when you're writing about things in an honest way and, and showing and writing about how you've healed, 
for one, you, you feel less alone and it can offer people, for lack of sounding cheesy, like offer them hope. So through my writing, it's been really nice to get a lot of emails from people who say they've been really moved by the book. And I just try to be honest, you know, and, and real and talk about my own healing process and overcoming trauma. Primarily, you know, I talk about it through the lens of plants, but also in other ways too in the book. And that's all I can do is to be honest and hope it reaches someone. And as far as the herbalism courses, my way of teaching is to, I'm interested in, in helping people really develop relationship with the plants through experiential learning. Like I'm not the kind of herbalist will say, you know, tell people what to take. I'm not prescriptive. I just bring people into experiences of connection, a relationship with nature, getting their hands in the earth, harvesting plants, for example, like drinking an infusion and just, you know, having people journal about what they feel before I tell them what it is. Real embodied experiential learning so that they trust their own intuition. They trust their own experiences with the plants. One of my students said the amazing thing about my teaching is that when I begin to teach, I become invisible. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. And I just, I thought that was the best compliment ever, you know, because ultimately it's not about me at all. I just want to offer these tools to people. I almost feel like I just introduce people like here, like meet this plan, you know, meet this, meet this practice. Like, you know, then I, and then once they develop a relationship, I step out of the way. I'm just really excited to share the things that I've learned that have helped me. I just aspire to be really authentic all the time. And I'm always learning. Some people will refer to me as being an expert in herbalism. Like I don't, I don't really embrace that term at all. Like I'm always learning. I'm always trying to check in with myself. Learning and unlearning is like constant lifelong process, you know? So, so yeah, I guess my way is just to be real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. I have lowered my practices. I, I'm not like this guru, but I think what helps me is just being honest and real with myself and with others. Ultimately, that's the most attractive quality in anyone. <laughs> Definitely in a teacher and a healer, and I think anyone who tells you they're an expert or feels that way. I want to run in the other direction from, and <laughs> yeah, me too, totally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it sounds really humble. And I love that. And and that was echoed by Marie. I, I sent her a voice text yesterday, like, is there anything you want to ask Vanessa or like anything that I should definitely bring up? And she sent me back, you know, a couple minutes about your teaching style. And it was really, I don't, maybe I'll play it. Maybe I'll splice it in. Oh, interesting. But yeah. she said, honestly, maybe I can play it from my phone right now. Let, let's hear a little bit of this clip. We'll see. I'll, I'll Let's see if this will will work if I play it into the microphone. But yeah, because I, I, I was going to try to regurgitate it, but why not? Let's... Hi, Katie. I haven't had a chance to listen to all your messages yet. But <laughs> see, long-winded. Can you hear this? Yeah, I can hear it. I'm doing well. I'll send you more in a little bit when I have a chance to listen to your messages. But I am excited that you're talking to Vanessa today. She's just so cool. And I think you'll have a great conversation with her. Turns out. I don't know that I have any specific questions for her. I think that one thing I've really valued about studying with her and spending time with her is how she really encourages her students to tap into our own intuition when it comes to studying plants, which I think is really 
like it's I've gotten so much out of working with plants in that way. I don't feel like it's another thing where I'm just like shoving more information into my brain. She really encourages us. Like when we were in class in person, she would bring us an infusion to try. Or when we were doing class on Zoom, it would be just like showing us a photo of a certain plant. And then she would kind of ask us to tap into what we felt based on the photo or based on like how the infusion is feeling in our body when we drink it. And it's been so wild and magical to see how accurate everybody's intuition is when it comes to what the medicine of each plant is. It's like, like we come up with similar things to what you would look up in a book, but it's in our own kind of unique ways and often includes this sort of like magical, mystical, poetic, kind of the energetic side that you might not find, but it all just makes so much sense. And we all have like similar different aspects of the same idea. So that I think would just be cool to talk to her about her approach to working with plants in that way. And specifically, I think to teaching in that way, like really encouraging people to tap into their own inner wisdom. I, and I really admire that about her. So I think that would be interesting to talk about. And also, thank you, Maria. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Vanessa? Like what she, I mean, I think you kind of did, you kind of covered it, but is there anything else you want to add to it? It was so cool to hear like a, a first hand account yeah, of it. Love hearing that. I mean, I think she covered it, you know, like bringing people into direct experience. And I just like, what do you think? I'm really interested in teaching principles of herbalism that are just, you know, kind of universal through a lot of holistic healing traditions, you know, like, you know, the, the theories of looking at plants through the lens of the elements or, you know, their energetics, is it cooling, moistening, drying, astringent, you know, rather than looking at a plant and saying, this is this plant, this plant does this. And again, everyone's body and everyone's experience is valid and unique. If somebody drinks an infusion and says, you know, I feel this way and I'm feeling this place in my body, how could that possibly be wrong? And so too often, like Maria said in the message, we're just filled with information, information, information. And so much of our own experience is invalidated or we're not, we don't even give ourselves the time and space to really think, oh, what, what is this making me feel? So every class in person, when we worked with a particular plan, I try to make it as multi-sensory as possible, where if possible, we are touching the plant. And there's so much information there, especially when you've just studied the basics of herbalism for a little while, that you can figure out the, fl- the family of the plant, whether the plant is moistening, cooling, drying, and then taking the infusion to your body and sitting with that for a minute and seeing what you feel. And so usually I start a class like that and have them do like a brief meditation, drinking the infusion, have everybody journal about it, and then we share. And then after that, after everyone shared, like Maria said, it's pretty amazing how I, you know, I don't want to use the word accurate because, you know, but, you know, there's so much synergy in everything that everyone is feeling. And so not only does that validate the the student's experience, but it, but it validates what the medicine of the plant is because then it's like, okay, well, that's exactly what the plant does, you know? So it's kind of amazing. And it's been really, I really enjoy that as a teacher too. Because I get to get to teach, I like record all these experiences and, and I'm just like, wow, yeah. Okay. Like for example, skullcap, 
I would, you know, pass around a tincture and people wrote down that they felt more focused, they felt more calm, all the things that this plant does without knowing what it was. So it's, I think it's a valuable way to teach, a valuable way for us to, it's almost like we're discovering and uncovering together rather than me, than me telling everybody what this does and what they should take. And herbs are also not one size fits all. Everyone has a different relationship or a different reaction to something. So I really emphasize everyone listening to their bodies. And then that brings us back to kind of what you asked me earlier. It forces you, I, I know it's asking you like, what does your body feel? Because ultimately that's the place to start, right? Is listening to the body. What is your body feeling? What are the what are the sensations that are coming up? What are even the emotions that are coming up? It's all valid. It's all information. Yeah. As a teaching method and a teaching style, and it seems so much more sustainable from a learning perspective. And unfortunately, so opposite of anything that I have experienced in the educational system, which I think is a whole different conversation, but more sustainable in the sense of, you know, setting people up to actually use the information instead of just memorizing facts. And it's like that cliche, like you can, if you give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach a person to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime or whatever, you know, I feel like you're, Mm -hmm. you're, you're really doing, doing that. So, so what is this, this course that Maria took? The one that Maria took was at, at in person at Sawmill Herb Farm in Western Mass. And I'm actually teaching there again this summer. So it was really great because we were able to harvest the plants, work with the plants in person. And then we, you know, we met for a few hours. Uh, I think it was, she took an, a six-month or a nine-month course. And, and then she's been studying with me for a few years. And then when the pandemic happened, we, you know, shifted the class online. And I figured out ways to kind of as best I can, you know, translate the experience onto the internet or onto, you know, Zoom. So with every class I teach, whether it's an in-person apprenticeship, she did the herbal apprenticeship, which was very intensive, or an online course, I always have people do practices in between the times that we meet. So that could mean drinking a particular herbal infusion every day for a month. It could be, you know, going out and learning how to identify a particular plant and making medicine with that plant. It could be sitting with a plant and drawing a plant. So just, you know, that is really vital as part of my teaching is, is what people do between the times that we meet. Yeah. Something else I wrote down to ask you was, you know, about the future of herbalism and, and, you know, this seems to be growing in a way of people are more aware of it. People seem to know what infusions are more so than they did, you know, than I did many years ago, or even a few years ago. I practice what is, you know, holistic herbalism. Um, And it's important, I think, to make that distinction. And most herbalists, I would say, probably fall into that category. But it is easy to approach plants the same way you would approach allopathic medicine, right? I mean, so, for example, you know, you have a headache instead of reaching for an aspirin, you reach for willow bark or, you know, and and you do that. And it's easy to forget that these these plants are growing right outside your door. So I'm far more interested in helping people build relationship with land than teaching people to become herbalists personally. I found that herbalism and you know learning about the medicinal plants that grow right under our feet is a really wonderful entry point to initiate that relationship. I'm particularly, you know, doing plant walks and teaching about wild plant medicine and foraging. Um, but I'm not 
person, you know, I think, I think it's very valuable as interested in replacing herbs with other, other medicines. I think that it's really important to develop a relationship with your body first. Like I said earlier, like really listening to the whispers when, when any tiny little imbalance appears. And one thing I write about in my book and I, I'm, and I talk about in my classes when I teach, it's like, we have to look at the whole picture of our lives and how we interact in it. And, you know, if, if we have unhealthy habits, we, if we just take a plant into our, you know, into a practice, it's not, it can only do so much. So for example, the basics, like if you're not getting enough sleep, you know, because you're stressed out about a particular thing and you're, you know, ruminating over, over and over and over again, you could take, you know, a plant that's going to calm your nervous system or help insomnia, but ultimately you want to address what's keeping you up at night. You know, if you're binge watching Netflix till two in the morning versus going for walks in the park, if you're eating really, really unhealthy food, if, you have trauma that you haven't processed, you know, herbalism can sometimes really initiate the process of healing in that way, but it's really important to include other practices as well. So from a holistic perspective, you really want to get to the root cause of why a symptom is happening in the first place, not just treating the symptom by itself. You know, you could be like, I have, I have a headache. Oh my God. And, you know, turn to taking an aspirin, which is totally fine. But then, you know, you could also drink more water. Like I, I usually know why I have a headache. It's like, oh, I'm like a little bit hungover. I like didn't sleep or I haven't drank water all day or I haven't eaten or whatever, you know? So yeah, that's, that sounds like a really smart approach. <laughs> I also just, I'm such an advocate for the plants themselves ever since I was a kid, I've had a very strong relationship with land and I'm underneath all of the work I do. I just really want to heal our relationship, like heal the, the illusion of separation from the earth. And herbalism is a great way to develop relationship with plants and to, and to, to develop that emotional connection to land that inspires us to take better care of it ultimately. And so that is kind of the underlying mission of all of it for me. That's so important. With you know, what you we were talking about earlier, getting to the root cause of things, right? And, and holistic herbalism, I think that is so related to trauma and anger and connecting to the body and pain, right? And I'm understanding the connection so much. And I was really pleased to hear that you have the chapter in your book that covers anger. Can you talk about that chapter a little bit more and why did you decide to include it? And I think it's a bit related to, to what you just mentioned about our connection to our environment, because there's a the part in that chapter where you talk about consent and you talk about the land and consent. And I love if you could share a bit of that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, well, two chapters come to mind. Um, the chapter that that talks about consent is the wild rose chapter. And that's in the second section of the book. So the way I framed the book, there's a theme for every section and the, the wild rose sections section I call liminal realms, which is to, for, you know, just, I imagined walking into a forest and all the plants that grow along that forest edge that are protecting that space, that sacred space 
So wild rose is a climbing vine that is, you know, seen now as a really fiercely invasive species, but is a, a really intense boundary keeper with the thorns and the way that the plant grows. And it was actually brought to the U.S. from Japan as a living fence for livestock. So is literally, you know, used as a boundary keeper and is a boundary keeper in the wild. And that chapter is all about asking permission and about consent. That's a chapter where I write about the sexual assault and, and, uh, and just like the secrecy of it and the shame around it and, um, and healing from that. And, uh, and I, I draw the parallel between abuse of women's bodies and abuse of the earth, you know, how we just see the earth as, as a resource, as opposed to a living entity, you know, the soil is alive, the plants are alive, you know, and just our bodies too, we extract and carve our bodies up <laughs> to look more quote unquote beautiful or, you know, and, and we're, you know, entered without permission, you know, too many people have experienced that and just, but so is the land. So that, that whole chapter is about boundaries and consent and how, when we assert our boundaries, we actually take up more space. Um, and uh, in a later chapter, when I was really processing the trauma from that is about anger. So that chapter, I focus on dandelion and just the power of dandelion to like burst through sidewalks and this like relentlessness of this plant and this intense power of the plant. And I should just kind of circle back for a second to rose. It's really interesting how the plant's medicine rose is um, and all plants in the rose family are astringent. So they draw tissue together. So they really actually do create stronger boundaries in your skin and in your tissue. Whereas um, dandelion actually is so supportive of the liver. And in traditional Chinese medicine, for example, there are emotional associations with different organs and the liver is said to be where we store anger. Um, so that's kind of how I kind of like related the different themes to different plants in terms of what their medicine is. And that, that chapter I talk about boxing for me as a therapeutic practice, really deciding to devote myself to it and working through body image issues, working through anger and realizing how I was kind of taught indirectly to tamp it down, how many women are taught indirectly to tamp it down, you know, to be, to tame ourselves, to be nice, to be good, you know, and just boxing really liberated me from that in many ways. And, uh, and just how that can come out in physical forms if we don't deal with it, whether it's anxiety or high blood pressure or hives is one of my students talks about. And, and you know, I'm, I use some examples when we don't deal with it. So it's interesting. So I use dandelion, a plant that actually literally angers people. People try to kill that plant off all the time but it's constantly coming back, coming back, coming back. So it's also, I, I see like symbolically a really powerful plant as a medicine for chronic people pleasers that are trying to please all the time. This plant that is just like so showy and comes back again and again and again, relentlessly, no matter how much we try to get rid of it. And it's very fiery too, in terms of like, you know, thinking about the elements. And of course, if you think about, you know, the, the, the energetics of fire in that way from the perspective of the elements is very, very fiery. So yeah, so, you know, thinking about dandelion as a support as kind of a symbol of this of confidence and and just like the way I processed anger through movement through boxing and how 
that led me to really, I would say, develop the the strength and confidence to confront things in my life that I wouldn't have been able to had I not done it. And then later, when I got all of this out of my system, I really began to embrace my sensitivity and vulnerability as strength because I didn't have to guard myself so much. I knew I could defend myself. I knew I didn't have as much to prove. Whoa, this is so cool. (laughs) We talk about the word weeds, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is something that I heard you discuss as well just the way we use that in language, you know, like I said earlier, when you're moving, like you're in the weeds or you're in the weeds of it, or um, it's almost minimizing a a creature, you know, it's, it's derogatory towards, we don't say that about you're in the grass, you know, the grass is like Mm -hmm. nice. Right. And, And when you, you were talking about body image related to nature, thinking about what we do, the beauty standards, we manipulate our size and shape to fit into beauty standards is very similar to what we do to our lawns or to our homes. And part of that is like, okay, beauty standards have always existed forever and that's fine. There's style and choice. And I think beauty is actually really important, but I'm learning more about landscaping and I mean, not really, but like I'm learning, I, I listened to like one podcast about, you know, using our environment and, and using native plants and the importance of that for the ecosystem and the bugs and all of it. It's like a whole thing that I'm very not qualified to talk about, but find fascinating and didn't even consider when I was a kid in Michigan and everyone is watering their lawn all summer, you know, until you know, and same thing, like when I was a kid, didn't even consider fat phobia and didn't even consider people discriminating against other people on the basis of size and weight and how, you know, diet culture is so pervasive and people are telling us to look a certain way. And part of it is like, it's fine to want to cut your hair to match the trend that we're in right now or to paint your nails or to do your makeup when that feels good because it's not harmful to you in any way to the nature right and that's the same thing it's like if you want to trim your bush to be a certain way like go for it do it as long as it's not harmful and so i think it's just like the same practices like questioning like thinking critically about why we're doing this and for the earth and ourselves being part of the earth. And, and then what you said about anger, like that, like I keep alluding to, it's just been really on my mind for a while. And I really realized that just, this will not shock you or anyone like, you know, people pleaser, the whole bit you said about dandelions growing through the concrete, like it, that, that blows my mind. And the, the older I get, the more I'm realizing, like, I have to be more like dandelion like i have to do that because i'm that is the the nature and recently i i i had this kind of unexplained pain it was a uh, sciatica like started in 2019 and it would really you know chronic because it's been a long time it would come and go and i come from like a sea of back problems and i read this and it, i had a flare-up for like three weeks really recently and I was like at my wits end about it. I was just like really down and, you know, went into a bit of a depression. I couldn't really do my normal walk that I'm doing. I wasn't 
that I do every day. I, I, sitting was excruciating. I had like a pinched nerve. I definitely had a pinched nerve. And I even went to urgent care. They put me on steroids. They injected something into my, into my butt that made me super bruised and nothing helped. It, it just kept getting worse after doing all these things. And then you know, the steroids made me incredibly anxious and um, more so than usual. And anyway, all this to say, one day I'm on the phone with my friend Isabel and I'm, I'm fully weeping. And she was like, listen, you got to read this book. It's called Healing Back Pain. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. I have that book. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I, I am like on another level. I don't even want to talk about it here or in general because I'm like, it helped. I, I keep joking around to my friends. I was like, so I cured my back by reading a book, turns out. Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, if anyone is struggling with chronic pain or back pain, like I, I truly highly recommend this yeah, book. No, and, I, and I'm going to not even remotely be able to concisely explain it. But the big theme or something that I really took away from it, and I, I'm being very reductive, being, you know, making those those jokes. Also, my amazing friend, Dr. Patty, gave me acupuncture and it like really also shifted things and, you know, helped the flare up I was having. And so I want to thank her. But also it's completely about this. Like it's completely about repressed anger. It's about taking it's a, and it's about to, to make this full circle. It's about distraction. Right. So that's why my newsletter was about distraction and it, our bodies, nature is so smart, right? Like it's so, how does it make an acorn into a goddamn humongous oak tree? Like, I don't know, but it figures that out. Right. Or it takes a sperm and an egg and busts out a baby and eventually without us like doing much. Right. So mm-hmm. they're very smart. Our bodies, nature synonymous. And what, you know, what I took away from this book that I think is really helping me is that essentially this, this man, Dr. Sarno, he, he was a doctor and had seen, you know, a million people with back pain and surgeries and they'd done everything and the whole thing. And, and basically his consensus was, the body, it is actually real pain, right? But pain initiates in your brain and it's taking oxygen away from the muscle, Mm -hmm. therefore creating real pain, right? And it does that to distract from a psychological pain, basically a feeling you don't want to feel. So instead of feeling a feeling we don't want to feel, we turn to controlling food in our body. We turn to codependency. We turn to work addiction. We turn to drugs or whatever it is, right? And I tend to turn to, you know, being busy, running around, blah, blah, blah. And then this thing in my body, you know, I think what what our bodies do sometimes is they make this pain and it flares up because we don't want to feel something psychological or emotional. And when I read that, I was like, oh man, that's like, yeah, I I do have stress. And I do. And his whole thing is like, it's not even about like healing it or doing therapy on it. It's just acknowledging like, this is a distraction, this pain in my, for me, it's in my butt down my leg, like a shooting pain. This pain is a distraction from me feeling this, you know, trauma from when I was 12 or when, you know, whatever it is, or feeling this like stress that I'm late right now or, and just like shifting the attention of like, it's not a structural abnormality. I am kind of like when you have a panic attack for the first time, you're like, Mm -hmm. what the fuck is this? I'm dying. But when you have your like fifth one, you're like, okay, I know what this is. It's not my first rodeo. Like this time I was able to, I was able to do that. You know, it wasn't like it just went away overnight, but I was able to, to see that it was a distraction. And 
anyway, and he says the primary thing we're we're distracting from is usually rage and anger because I think to your point, as people, we don't know how to necessarily express that. And I'm so happy that boxing was something that you were able to do that in, but I haven't had anything like that and haven't had sports like that. And anger expression, I think, like you said, for people pleasers, it's like, oh yeah, that's not something that I have at all um, learned to express. I, I don't even know where to begin with that one. Well, I think too, for me, I had such a buildup of, of that feeling and emotion that boxing helped me get it out. And I feel like for I... I'm able to communicate in a way now that it doesn't build up for me. I don't necessarily, I'm not somebody who gets angry very often, but I think that I tamped it down so much before that I needed boxing to get it out. And I think that I've, if I'm able to communicate well, that doesn't necessarily build up for me. If I'm able to sort of, you know, like you said, it, it builds up for people who are people pleasing, right? Cause it's like you, you're resentful if you're unable to say no or you're unable to to maintain a boundary or, or ask for what you need that can wind up accumulating as anger so I, I feel like I'm able to do that now in a way that I wasn't able to before mm. um, so for me it really it's shifted because I'm able able to set boundaries I'm able to to say no and I'm able to attuned to what I need. And it doesn't mean I don't get angry, but I, but I think that I can communicate in a way that it doesn't necessarily have to flare up in a way that it used to. And it, it didn't even come out externally, but it, I, I internalized it. And you know, I also say too, that not only is it, is pain sometimes an expression of tension that we're holding in our bodies because of these repressed emotions. Yeah. It's also communication, you know, like for, like for me, I had so much pain from overtraining and boxing and my body was like, okay, that's enough. You know, it wasn't necessarily any repressed anger. It was just like, I was overdoing it. And so I just, I, I looked at my body, like when I'm feeling a symptom, I'm like, okay, well, what are you trying to communicate to me right now? You know, am I doing something that's causing this or, or do I need to stop doing something that's causing this? Or is, or is it like you said, you know, like Dr. Sarno says, it is a repressed emotions like what is this what is this communication telling me um rather than what i used to do react out of fear just get i kind of get more a little more curious yeah oh i really really am happy that you do that and i'm inspired and i'm i'm trying to figure out how to do that and and learning ways to do that as as we speak <laughs> not easy and you said dandelion is a good herb for that. How do you, how do you suggest incorporating dandelion specifically? Well, for one thing, it's really important to, you know, if, if people are harvesting from the wild, well, for one thing, I just, I just want to say that it's absolutely completely insane that people are poisoning their lawns to get rid of like a really valuable medicine and food, yeah. <laughs> which, which is what dandelion is. And um, a beautiful flower. And a beautiful flower. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. When we call so, people, we don't yeah. see these plants. Um, so if you're harvesting from the wild, just going to be very mindful that you're not harvesting from a place that's, that's been, or is being sprayed. I'm really interested. If you look at a dandelion, it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful yellow flower. It could be a, you know, roses are so expensive and like, do you know the history of that or why, like who said that this is a wheat? I mean, obviously they, they grow in abundance, but like, who's, who said that? Why do we do, why do we do that? 
Well, I think, I mean, it comes from wanting, you know, it comes from that same space of control, you know, wanting to control nature. These, these plans in a, in a way, you know, you can say in some way they have their own volition, you know, they have a purpose, they have actually an ecological purpose. I think they're, you know, it, it, it's the whole idea of weeds came started around agriculture, you know, it's basically a plant that grows where you don't want it to. Some people refer to weeds, you know, plants that aren't, aren't native to the, to the environment, you know, we call the plant naturalized when it's, when it's become almost like become native, so to speak. And it is, has kind of been absorbed into the ecosystem and isn't causing any harm, but dandelions, you know, plant themselves all over. And, and, and if something's trying to tame and control and have this like ridiculous carpet, like lawn, it's just like, they, that's not something that is natural. You know, you're trying to create a very unnatural situation. And so these weeds pop up. I mean, to me, I'm just thinking of it in this way. You know, it's like, it's a reminder that you're not in control. It really, really, it would, it's just, it's a practice that we have to stop and have to rewire. I mean, it's just, you know, we're using chemicals and, and pouring this poison on our lawns. It's making us sick when we could have food forests and medicine and grow our own food in these, in these small spaces of land. Yeah. And going back to dandelion in terms of the medicine, the root, is typically used as a liver support. And you know, if you think about what the liver does in the body, a lot of times if the liver is overtaxed, it causes inflammation. And you know, there's a lot of other sort of like ripple effects in the body. So an herb like dandelion, which is a, a tap root that supports the liver is really, really valuable. Um, so the root particularly is, is really helpful. And it's also in the category of what's called an alterative in herbalism, an herb that will help basically digestion, absorption, and assimilation, like really helping to heal long standing conditions when you use the plant over a period of time. So for example, like drinking a cup of dandelion root tea a couple, couple times a day, the leaves are edible as well, you know, really great bitters for the digestive system. So the whole plant is really valuable. Um, and if you think of the, the digestive system too, you know, like symbolically, like digesting our food and our experiences, you know, how much, how much tension we can sometimes hold in that part of our bodies when we're stressed or have anxiety or feel angry. So that's always compromised. So dandelion really supports that whole system of the body. Yeah. Is it something that when you're making an, I love dandelion tea. Is it something that you want to, you know, seep for four hours and, and just kind of sip on? Yeah, I mean, roots typically want to steep a little bit longer. Dandelion is also a really wonderful source of inulin, which is a prebiotic. So it's food for the microbiome, for the gut. So that's really important too. So roots typically want to steep for a couple hours. Sometimes you can even simmer them a little bit with, on, in a covered pot. And then, and then, yeah, and then drink it a couple of times a day. It's typically very safe. And, um, and also like, you know, when, when the liver is overtaxed, sometimes that can show up on the skin as well. So dandelion, you'll often read about dandelion root being really good for the skin, being really good for like any kind of chronic inflammation because of all these underlying healing effects that it has on the, the digestive system. Yeah. And people often use it as a coffee alternative, right? Like dandy yeah. blend. Is that the same? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love the taste of it. Well, that's the next thing I'm adding to my herbalism wish list. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about, you mentioned you're in a new relationship. So mm -hmm. 
I'd love to talk a little bit about, I usually ask people their greatest lesson on romantic relationships, but for the the phase that you're in, how do you manage your feelings around newness and uncertainty? And, you know, I think love and novelty are so connected. And for me, sometimes even more so than being sad or a little bit low, being really high and excited and full of anticipation can throw me off of my center even more so. And I think that's okay. But yeah, I'm just wondering like how how you're feeling through that and how you're taking care of yourself through that and any lessons you have about that portion of relationship. Oh, I love that question. Yeah. Wow. Let's see. I mean, where do you even begin with this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, for one thing, I mean, we've been talking so much about the body, right. And, and like deepening relationship with the body. I, I will say for one thing that I'm like, rediscovering my body again through this relationship in a new way, which has been amazing. There have been parts of myself that I had kind of just put to the side because I I wasn't in the right situation before this. And so that's been really nice to, to reconnect with my body in that way. And as far as like finding balance, I mean, it is like, uh, we often say like, we've been in like a six month honeymoon, like where there has been this like level of just it feels right. Like I, like I wrote the other day that he feels like home, you know, it just feels, I I feel like the sense of it it being right in a way I haven't before. And I think it gives me the confidence to sort of dive in because he echoes the same feelings. We we have open communication about it. I think if that weren't the case, I would hold back so much more, but I do feel like, I mean, you were kind of alluding to, I think that sort of like fear of letting go because yeah, it's scary to really fall in love with somebody and, and there's like that level of uncertainty with it. So yeah, of course I grapple with that too. But I think that I, we actually, he and I just had this conversation last night about the notion of impermanence and how scary that is when you're falling in love with someone that we never know what's going to happen. And ultimately for me, that makes me cherish him and each day that much more. And I know that I want to be fully present in it because of that. So yeah, like you said, there's so many, there's so much intensity when you're having a new relationship and you're falling in love. And and especially like I see this person as being a life partner already. So, and we've been talking about that. So there's like a level of, it's a, it's a different feeling than if it feels like so tenuous, you know, I feel like I can give in more and there's a level of freedom in that too. But it is also very scary. And, and you know, like we talked about earlier, I am at a big pivot point in my life, you know, just, just having published a book and I'm working on a new one and seeing where I'm going to land. So there's a lot that feels like there's a lot of moving parts right now, but it feels, but at the same time, it all feels right. So I'm just going with it. Mm, it sounds really exciting. And yeah, I, I think that's the thing. I, I I often think about that with marriage and someone I, I was with for a while, we would have conversations about this too, of like if we were married or when people are married, choosing every day to be together is so much better than looking at it as well, as I'm saying this, I don't know. I think there is something cool about commitment as well of like, 
yeah, we chose this and we're going to like figure it out and work on it. And it's not going to be easy every day. And I think that's really true and, and a totally valid way to look at it as well as, you know, both of us can leave at any time. Nobody's forcing anyone to be here. We are choosing to stay. We're choosing to be part of it. And that, yeah, I don't even know if that is making sense. I feel like I'm getting sort of loopy, but I just really liked what you shared. I, I, I make the connection even to your teaching, right? Of like, I'm not forcing you to see what I think this plant is. What do you think it is? And let's talk about it. And I think applying that to my therapist says everything is everything. And I think applying that to relationships is really valid as well. Like mm-hmm. I want to be with you today. What do you think? <laughs> you know, and having a conversation from there is so much better than let's do this. Come on. And you know, and I've been there with people too. I think it's nice though to have a vision for the future and also cherish each other every day. I think it can feel a little unsettling not to know that you're moving in the same direction. So I like to, ideally, it's like, it it feels good to have a balance of both. Yes. That's such a good distinction. Thank you for making that distinction. Actually, that's so true. Yeah. I think we, we, we need that. Like we, we talk about codependency so much, but another thing that's been coming up with me and my friends is like, we are dependent on each other. Like we are human Mm -hmm. beings who, you know, just like the ecosystem is, dependent on, you know, bugs are dependent on or bees with flowers or whatever. Like we do depend on each other for connection, camaraderie and support. And that's okay. Um, we just need to do it in a way that's, you know, like holding a bar of soap, you know, too tight, it slips out too loose, it falls Goldilocks. (laughs) Yeah. And you need, you know, you need to be able to nurture each other's growth. And it's like, if you're constantly, wondering what's happening and we, you know, it's like, it just, it, it can feel very unsettling. So I think, um, yeah, I think a balance of both is really nice and just, um, and then and obviously just being able to really communicate along the way. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Oh, well, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for taking so much time. Um, yeah. I hope everyone gets a copy of your book and signs up for all of your courses and, you know, just follows everything that you do. I'm going to, and I'm just really glad that Maria connected us and congrats on the new book and on, you know, all the travel and newness you have coming up. And I'm really excited for you. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking to you too. So the name of this podcast is Let It Out. Is there anything else that you want to share? Anything that you never get to talk about that you wanted to? Anything you wished I would have asked? I can't think of anything now. I feel pretty complete. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's let out a deep breath. Inhale. Let it out. Thank you so much, Vanessa. This this was great. I'm, I'm really grateful that you came on the podcast. I am too. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. That's my conversation with Vanessa. Get yourself a hard copy of her new book, Awakening Artemis. And I really have been loving her newsletter. She had a especially 
potent newsletter recently about dandelion actually so i highly recommend signing up for that and keeping in touch with her and if you want to keep in touch with me of course this podcast let it out has its own instagram at let it out with three t's and speaking of we have made a survey the link is in the show notes wherever you're listening to this if you just click on that episode you will get the link to two surveys that i want to tell you about two google forms that i made (laughs) that it would be so cool if you want to fill them out. No pressure on either of these. I'll get to those in a second, but quickly, if you want all of these links that I'm describing, the best way to make sure you get all that and you don't have to stop while you're driving or walking or folding laundry or whatever you're doing when you're multitasking and listening, the Let It Out letter can come to your inbox. The link to sign up for that is wherever you are. And I send out a newsletter every so often with an essay of whatever I'm pondering and learning. And with that, something that we talk about on this show quite a lot is friendship. So a podcast guest who's been on twice, Kayleen Schaefer and I are working on a project together and it's all about friendship. So we have a survey that we would love for you to fill out. It's if you want to, honestly, it's really specific to this project and the project's called we don't talk anymore because we don't talk very much about friendships ending the language and rituals post-romantic breakups are so well known they're cliche by now ice cream sobbing on the floor but when we split with friends we don't know what to do anyone coming undone over a friend breakup at least publicly isn't the norm, even though it can hurt really badly, as badly as a romantic breakup. And I'm almost thinking perhaps more because there's really nowhere to go from there. You know, after you're in a romantic relationship, you can become friends. But when there's a friend fracture, where do you go from there? It's something that my friends and my different groups of friends have been talking about. I've seen it written about, and so has Kayleen. And that's why we're looking for friend breakups along with other kinds of friendship difficulties because we want to give a place for this. So if you want to tell us about your friend breakups or ask any friendship-related question, we might be starting some sort of advice situation where we'll do some reporting and interview therapists and experts. We don't know. But if you want to use a pseudonym, you can. The link to that questionnaire is in the show notes. And also, speaking of Let It Out to Instagram, Let It Out with 3Ts, if you want to do a takeover and connect with other people, we figured using our Let It Out Instagram might be a cool way for us to connect with each other. So there's a questionnaire if you want to sign up to take over the account and introduce yourself and show us where you're listening and what who you are it might be really fun and interesting so that questionnaire is also in the show notes and i might be doing a meetup in highland park in may brian friend of the show and someone who i met because he listened to the podcast i met him at a coffee shop in brooklyn so i thought that while they're here maybe you would want to come with us so i'm just setting this here send me an email respond to the let it out letter if you get it and if you will be here on may 12th and are in la and would want to do a park meetup or a morning coffee let us know and maybe we'll plan that if not 
no worries. I love you. I'm so grateful that you're here. If you liked this podcast, please share it with a friend that you think would also like it. And supporting the sponsors really helps (laughs) using the codes. Oh, and if you want more herbalism conversations, I'm linking my conversation with Rochelle as well as Erin and Noah in this so you can go back to those. And support your local herb shop. If you live here in LA, I love Wild Terra in Highland Park, which is where I happen to live. But even if I didn't, I'd probably drive there. And if you're in New York, Flower Power in the East Village is my favorite. And I'm sure there are so many more in other places and neighborhoods. Those are just the ones that I've used recently because that's where I lived. But let us know, maybe write, instead of an emoji this week, I'm sick of the emoji. Let's all write our favorite herb shop or or even tag them on Let It Out's Instagram, on Vanessa's Instagram, on my Instagram, as I always say. And yeah, let me know your favorite herb shop. If it's Wild Terror or Flower Power, feel free to, to just say that. Always good to see them. If you do listen to that episode with Rochelle... <laughs> I don't remember exactly what we talked about. I do remember it was like the day after or very close after speaking of a breakup, but not a friend breakup. And it was a really sweet conversation because I, I asked Rochelle, I was like, had an inability to talk about anything other than breakup. So I know that that was something we talked about and I'm sure many other things. Okay, more very soon. I'm really grateful. I'll talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. It's interesting that you said nettle. So so what I make every day is nettle, oat straw, alfalfa, milky oat, or oat. What is that one called? Oat milky straw? Oat. Oat, oat straw. Yeah. Are those two similar? The same plants, but a different part of the plant. And okay. the, the straw just looks like little pieces of hay almost. And yes. Tops are just typically like you use the milky oat tops in, in tincture because you really want the milky part of it. Like that, it's almost like that's like milky sap, which is so delicious and so good for your nervous system. But, um, but yeah, I use the, yeah, I, mine are the ones that look like, hey, should I switch it to the other one? Maybe that sounds good. <laughs> no, for, for infusion, the oat straw makes more sense. Oh, I for, see. Um, like the milky oats are best when they're harvested fresh and you can get that milky sap from them.